You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that resents being run out of town by an angry mob for creating a shambling abomination of a corpse man when we were explicitly told, and I quote, to make a new friend. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a brief apology, as it was brought to our attention by a loyal listener that I severely wanged some of the pronunciations in the previous episode on Whale Rider. Oh wait, so it was a Megan problem. Uh, you might have messed some up. I don't. I didn't really go back and like. RJ studied for the test. I most damningly the town in which Kahu lives, which should have been pronounced Fongara, because as I learned, the the w gets turned into a f sound, and I said Wangara, so I was not even a little bit close. Holy hell! Also, when I say like brought to our attention, I mean like lovingly sweetly and and quite frankly so much nicer than i deserved so thank you listener and i apologize to all other new zealand maori and and just any general listeners who knew better and were like oh no oh god they're just going to keep doing that the whole time (laughs) well when megan says there or they megan's referring to themselves yep not both of us and now on to today's episode which is actually an ono lit class first Because while we've covered a few works of fiction where the author has definitely borrowed liberally from their own lives, this is our first time doing an out-and-out non-fiction autobiography. And we're starting with a doozy. The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. Frederick Douglass was an American social reformer, abolitionist, writer, and statesman, but is perhaps best known as an incredibly accomplished orator? Orator? I think either one. Which is a fancy way of saying public speaker. Obviously, as is the focus on this episode, Douglas was an extremely skilled writer, but when he starts giving speeches and becomes more well-known, it quickly becomes, like, a standing-room-only situation. Especially when he starts touring Europe, which I'm pretty sure RJ will get to. One of the many reasons that Douglas was key to the abolitionist movement was just how good he was at stirring up a room with his words. Slaveholders would try to claim that enslaved people lacked the intellectual capacity to function independently, and Douglas stood as a living counterexample, which, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unpack in the problematic nature of reducing a man to a prop to hold up and go, see? See? Enslaved people are pretty smart. Especially when you also consider that Northerners with anti-slavery views would go see Douglas give a speech and be like, (laughs) Why, there's no way that such a brilliant speaker could ever have lived as a slave, so... Who would have thunk? Yep. But yes, so, Douglas and his personal narrative take us from the beginning of his life to his eventual escape to freedom, and is an extremely important piece of text, not only for looking at through a historical lens, but through a literary one as well which RJ will go into shortly, as this is an autobiography and would sort of involve RJ and I stepping all over each other, Um, so we're structuring this episode a bit differently than we usually would. But first, we gotta go into, as we always do, did we read this in school, RJ? Yes. So I took an entire class on slave narrative, so you know, (laughs) fit right in. So uh, yeah, college then, I assume. Yes. They weren't teaching that in high school. 
There you go. You read the thing for once. Read some uh, Frederick Douglass, read about old Pocahontas, and others. Pocahontas is considered a slave narrative? Yeah, it fell under the genre of a transatlantic slave narrative. They did bring her back to Europe, probably against her will. Fair enough. Unclear if she was into the journey or Pocahontas too. What a bad movie. We actually watched that. Wait, they you, they had you watch Pocahontas yeah. too? Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> that was towards the end of the term. Fuck it, Pocahontas too. Exactly. I have like a half-baked memory of, of reading, I think like a section of this, not in my English class, but in like my high school American history class in the, the requisite like, okay, let's talk about slavery bit that goes in between... And then we signed the Declaration of Independence, and and then we had the Civil War. So, with that out of the way, RJ, are you ready to kick things off as Oh No Lick Class does a non-fiction? Sure. Then, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> then do that. So, Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey was born sometime during February 1818 and died February 20th, 1895. Since we're discussing a memoir today, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Frederick and his life. I do want to point out to you astute listeners that Frederick was not born with the last name Douglas. Instead, as a child, he used his mother's surname of Bailey. After escaping enslavement, he changed his surname to Stanley and then to Johnson. Wanting to have a more distinctive last name, he asked Nathan Johnson, with whom Frederick resided after escaping enslavement, what would be a suitable last name. Nathan Johnson was an African-American, born a free man, and was considered one of the wealthiest Americans of color alive at the time. He and his wife, Mary, a.k.a. Polly, were part of the Underground Railroad. Having recently read Sir Walter Scott's poem, The Lady of the Lake, he suggested that Frederick take the name of Douglas, which was the name of two separate characters in the poem. The actual reason, I mean, it, what he says in, in his narrative is that there were too many other Johnsons in New Bedford, like including Nathan Johnson, because he was going by Frederick Johnson. It was like, there's just too many Mr. Johnsons running around. And he was like, all right, fine, I'll change it again. Like, Nathan, you, you pick something. <laughs> Picked it right out of a book. So here you go. The text at the heart of today's episode was written when Douglas was 27 seven years after he escaped what was considered free territory. The sales of this narrative, which made it a bestseller, allowed him to earn enough funds to achieve his legal freedom the same year it was published. So the technical literature genre this narrative fits under is what is classically referred to as a slave narrative or a captive narrative. There does seem to be an albeit slow change in how we refer to these writers and their narratives, specifically that they were not slaves, but rather they were enslaved people, which seems to better explain the reality. No one is born a slave, people are born and then are enslaved by other people. The first examples of these kinds of narratives that specifically were written by enslaved African Americans were published in England during the 18th century. These narratives were published for a couple of main reasons. One, abolitionists wanted to publish these narratives, as they believed they were a persuasive form of argumentation against the practice of enslaving people. Generally, abolitionists served as editors of the text, and sometimes ghostwriters of the text if the subject of the memoir was illiterate. The other big reason these narratives were published is that they sold well and made big bucks on both sides of the pond. You might not know this, but slavery, it was kind of a big deal. It was heated on both sides of the issue, and when you have a heated topic, people are very willing to fork over money to get more information and hot takes about that issue. Hot takes sell, no matter what the time period. My studies tell me there was a war fought over this issue even in the United States. 
Oddly, the flag of the losers is still shown and displayed proudly by fans of losers in the 21st century. <laughs> Crazy, that. I, I wish I knew more about this, but I can't find statues. And I can't learn history without the statues. The stars and bars of the, you know, victors actually still flies also. I just couldn't find any logical reason during my research why there are some people fetishizing a flag of an army that lost decisively. What makes it even more embarrassing is that it was a defensive war. It is much easier to play defense, to lose in your own home, and then celebrate it? Yeah, definitely some weird masochistic fetish thing going on. Mm, gotta kink shame the South. Examples of other narratives were written by Harriet Tubman, Harriet Jacobs, and Lucy Delaney. These narratives also inspired abolitionists like Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, to pen fictionalized accounts. Generally, these narratives can be broadly categorized into three distinct forms. Tales of religious redemption, tales to inspire the abolitionist struggle, and tales of progress. There is a fourth narrative that is not academically recognized, but, uh... Tales that can be exploited by Hollywood for obscene profit by companies and producers is definitely at least a subgenre. Yeah, I'd say so. Freddy's narrative falls squarely under the kind of tale that inspires the abolitionist struggle, which was the most popular and most commercially viable form at the time. Because of that, there is a real temporal dividing line with these different types. The religious redemption type were among the earliest of the narratives. Most examples of the religious redemption text were published from the 1770s to the 1820s. The tale of progress narratives were generally published after the Civil War and replaced the texts that were published to inspire the abolitionist struggle, as it was felt there was not a need to inspire the struggle anymore, given that the war was over. Whoopsies. <laughs> I mean, I guess you can't blame them for being optimistic in broad strokes. <laughs> These progress narratives did less to convey the evil of slavery. In fact, some gave a sentimental account of plantation life and ended with the narrator adjusting to the new life of freedom. In short, the emphasis of these narratives shifted toward a recounting of individual and racial progress. You know, things were so simple back then. <laughs> Interestingly, after the post-Civil War narratives were published in the late 1860s and 1870s, there was a resurgence of these narratives a little more than a half a century later in the 1930s. To get a little historical on you here, you may remember the Roaring Twenties. You know, the Great Gatsby and the like? I, I do. I remember. And then this was followed up by the Depression of the 1930s. During the 30s, FDR passed the New Deal, which put a lot of Americans to work. One of the administrative boards created by the New Deal was the Works Project Administration, the WPA. While the WPA is maybe best known for building up America's infrastructure, the WPA also worked toward preserving America's artistic and literary heritage. Writers and researchers were hired by the Federal Writers Project to interview and document the stories of former enslaved people in the United States. More than 2,300 formerly enslaved people were interviewed for the project, and the resulting works were published between 1936 and 1938. Most of the people interviewed were children when the 13th Amendment was passed. Some of the interviews were actually recorded and could be listened to in the Library of Congress. The last interview conducted by the group was of Fountain Hughes, when Fountain was 101. Holy shit. First of all, great name. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Second, Fountain Hughes was perhaps a forerunner of financial advice, as he was quoted as saying in the 1940s that too many people bought things on credit instead of saving up for them. He said, quote, if I've wanted anything, I'd wait until I got the money and I paid for it in cash. Well said, Fountain. There you go. Forerunner to financing with RJ. Financing with Fountain. 
Another reason why Fountain Hughes is historically notable is that he was the grandson and child of people who were enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. Hughes's interview was one of the interviews that was recorded. You can listen to it online. It's pretty easy to find. He lived to be 109, although his age is a bit disputed. But it is kind of crazy to think about how you only need to go back three generations to find people who were enslaved by people considered to be America's forefathers. In more modern times, the genre has evolved into what is known as neo-slave narratives. Obviously, these narratives are generally considered to be works of fiction, like Ono Laquas alum, Octavia Butler's Kindred, or Toni Morrison's Beloved. And again, more stuff the entertainment industry can't get enough of. If it sells well, someone's going to try to make a buck off of it. Yeah. And now, for the memoir. Because we got to do the front half, and then I'm just going to come back in for the back half. Because, uh, as RJ stated, he was still pretty young when he wrote this memoir. He wasn't even 30 yet. So, the narrative, as Douglas narrates. Actually, uh, before we can get to the life of Douglas, in his own words, we have to hear from some white guys first. It was 1845. Such were the times. These white guys are here to provide authority and let us know that Douglas did in fact write this book on his own, which a lot of people wouldn't have believed at the time without... Well, without some white guys backing him up, unfortunately. The first one is in the preface, and his name is William Lloyd Garrison, a famous abolitionist and friend of Douglas's. He writes that he first heard Douglas speak at an anti-slavery convention, and that Douglas at first had to kind of be bullied into it because he was nervous about the fact that he'd never gone to school and had no experience in public speaking. But as I made pretty clear, you know, dude was a total natural at it, and Garrison compares him to Patrick Henry, Mr. Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death which is either a comparison that tickled the hell out of Douglas, or one he might have leaned over Garrison while he was writing his preface and been like, hey, mention Patrick Henry. He's gonna pop up again in one of my chapters, and it'll make for a great dramatic callback. Whichever it was, Douglas mentions Patrick Henry on his own later, and it totally does. And just a note on Garrison, he wrote a lot of four words in the genre. He was like the go-to guy. Ah. You got a narrative? You escaped? I'll do your forward. <laughs> Get Garrison, he's the dude. After the preface is a letter from Wendell Phillips, another prominent abolitionist. In his letter, Phillips wants to make a few things very clear. Number one, it's super important that this is a book about slavery written by a person who was enslaved. It is not a white abolitionist looking in from the outside at atrocities being committed, but a first-hand account from someone who's lived them. Two, Douglas was only a child when he was like, this whole setup is extremely fucked up, which legitimately fucked people up. You know, mostly racist fuckwads who were like, enslaved people are happy with their lot in life. They don't know any better. And it's like, no, here's a tiny child who already understands that being treated like a piece of property by another person is fucking bad. And finally, three, that Douglas was enslaved in Maryland, which apparently had a reputation for being the, quote, least brutal place in the South when it came to slavery, which is certainly something to keep in mind because... <laughs> Holy shit, I'm sure you can imagine what's to come is going to be, you know, generally pretty fucking horrific. Well, Maryland was pretty close to the north. Yeah, it's right there. Yeah, it's, right, it's right there. Yeah, it's weird now to think of it as being considered, like, the south, having grown up in Florida. Yep. Yeah. Just It's just weird geographically. <laughs> uh, but Frederick Douglass is nothing if not the hero of his own story. The, the man kicks ass. 
And I'm not saying that to sort of like ease the blow of the horrors of slavery that, you know, we're about to break down. Because that's fucked up. I don't want to be like, don't worry about all the terrible things that happened. Frederick Douglass was a badass and made it out all right. Like, Douglass should have been able to have a childhood and a family and not have had to constantly suffer and live in fear and pain and force himself to be resourceful and badass and shit. Like, I'm gonna point out cool stuff he does that shows how smart and brave and kick-ass he is, but also... Like we just said, he wrote this in his late 20s. Most of what happens to him happens while he's a little kid and a teenager. I know I'm digressing. It's just hard when it's an actual person's real life to find that balance of, here's the thing they did that was awesome with, but oh my god, they should never have had to have been in a position to do it. They were a child surrounded by the very definition of human suffering. So bear with me, I guess. <laughs> All right, I've stalled long enough. Let's, uh, let's get started. The first chapter opens with Douglas recounting that he was born, he said, Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey in Tuckahoe in Talbot County, Maryland. As for a date, he has no idea and admits that he can't recall having ever met an enslaved person who knew their birthday. As he's writing, he figures he's about 27 or 28 on hearing his enslaver claiming Douglas to be about 17, 10 years prior. He continues on to say that his mother was Harriet Bailey, and he had no idea who his father was, but that everyone all but admitted that he was a white man, with the whispered gossip being that it was the owner of the plantation, a man named Captain Anthony. Douglas says he never learned the truth and never really cared, because children fathered by their enslavers could usually expect much worse treatment to show that their enslaver wasn't, quote, playing favorites in order to pacify a jealous wife. He points out that the horrific practice of enslavers raping enslaved women is quote, profitable as well as pleasurable, as it allows him to increase his amount of enslaved people. Although, Douglas notes, there's another side to this, and I'll just read the whole quote here. I'm gonna be doing that a lot, because Douglas says things really well. I mean, that's kind of the whole point here. He's really good at saying stuff. That's why he did it for a living. <laughs> so Joe Biden would call him articulate? Oh, Jesus. So a lot of times I'm just going to be ending, I'm just going to end up defaulting to him because it's like, there's, there's no point. It's just, I'm just going to let him do it. Quote, every year brings with it multitudes of this class of slaves. It was doubtless in consequence of a knowledge of this fact that one great statesman of the South predicted the downfall of slavery by the inevitable laws of population. Whether this prophecy is ever fulfilled or not, it is nevertheless plain that a very different looking class of people are springing up at the South and are now held in slavery from those originally brought to this country from Africa. And if their increase do no other good, it will do away the force of the argument that God cursed Ham, and therefore American slavery is right. If the lineal descendants of Ham are alone to be scripturally enslaved, it is certain that slavery at the South must soon become unscriptural, for thousands are ushered into the world annually who, like myself, owe their existence to white fathers, and those fathers, most frequently their own masters. One of Douglas's great strengths is making his great sharp points where he never actually says the thing, maybe because it's too dangerous to say it plainly, maybe because he's being artful, I don't know. But it, it doesn't matter because you know exactly what he's talking about, and this is a great example of it. Uh, it's also the first of what will be many, many, many examples of Douglas contending with religion and how it's used as a tool in order to justify the extreme cruelty and continued existence of slavery. We'll get there. Anyway, he says he was separated from his mother as an infant and saw her maybe four or five times before she died when he was most likely around seven years old. And he was not even allowed to go to her burial. Although at that point, he says it felt as much 
like the death of a stranger. When Douglas is old enough to live on the plantation proper and not just on the outskirts with his grandmother, whose job it was to raise the youngest children, he witnesses his Aunt Hester get stripped naked and savagely whipped for spending time with an enslaved man from another plantation. Douglas says he watched while hiding terrified in a closet and that this was his first time witnessing anything like it. And marks it as, as the end of any kind of innocence about his life as an enslaved person. From there, he discusses the size of the plantation, which was home to 20 farms and between three to 400 enslaved people at any given time. He describes the monthly allowance of food, eight pounds of pork or fish and one bushel of cornmeal, and then the yearly allowance of clothing, two coarse shirts, one pair of linen trousers, one jacket, one pair of trousers for the winter, one pair of stockings, and one pair of shoes. For the kids too young to work, it was no shirt, no pants, no service. Just two shirts to last the whole year. And they weren't given any beds, just one blanket, and for that matter, almost no time to even use it. As Douglas explains that when the men and women were done working out in the field for the day, they still had their own washing, mending, and cooking to do. When they were finally able to lay down for a bit of sleep, it was a light one, because if they weren't immediately out the door as soon as they were called, they were in danger of brutal whipping at the hands of an overseer that Douglas recalls with bitter humor was appropriately named Mr. Severe, who would swear loudly and wildly as he indiscriminately beat and whipped men and women alike. Douglas notes that as a small mercy, Mr. Severe dropped dead shortly after he arrived and that he, quote, died as he lived, uttering with his dying groans, bitter curses, and horrid oaths. Which is pretty good to imagine. Some horrible taint rot trash island maggot meat of a person just going like, blurgled fuck shit goddamn Jesus Mary damn it to hell foaming at the mouth yeah funk. After this, Douglas makes a particular point about enslaved people and the act of singing, and you know much has been written and popularized in the media about enslaved people singing and like slave songs and things like that, and so this is one of those times where. It's really better to just sort of go to the source. So once again, I quote, They told a tale of woe, which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud, long, and deep. They breathed the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. The hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirit and filled me with ineffable sadness. I have frequently found myself in tears while hearing them. The mere recurrence to those songs even now afflicts me. And while I am writing these lines, an expression of feelings has already found its way down my cheek. To those songs, I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery. I can never get rid of that conception. Those songs still follow me to deepen my hatred of slavery and quicken my sympathies for my brethren in bonds. If anyone wishes to be impressed with the soul-killing effects of slavery, let him go to Colonel Lloyd's plantation, and on allowance day place himself in the deep pine woods, and there let him, in silence, analyze the sounds that shall pass through the chambers of his soul, and if he is not thus impressed, it will only be because there is no flesh in his obdurate heart. I have often been utterly astonished since I came to the North to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart, and he is relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. Douglas continues that Mr. Severe was replaced by a man named Mr. Hopkins, who was comparatively far less cruel of a man. 
which was maybe the problem because he didn't last long in the job and was himself replaced by a man named Mr. Gore, who was a monstrous burlap sack of shit demons. Except that's not a fair thing to say because he was a person who was a vicious without reason, whipped enslaved men and women until they bled without bothering to say why, and in one case went so far as to kill a man because he did not come when called. Douglas notes that Mr. Gore was also aptly named. It's like... There's enslavers down at the 19th century job fair, looking for overseers. What's that? Your name's Severe? You got the job. Gore? Sounds great. Mister, I lost my last shred of human empathy decades ago? You go fit right in. Got the job. Weird pattern going on here. You, know, you, you do what you love. You do, you what, do you what you do. You, you, do, do, what what your parents, you, you do what your, what your, name, your parents named you for. Yep. At the time, Douglas was still too young to do much work on the plantation apart from tending the front yard garden and running errands, and the bulk of his suffering came in the form of never having nearly enough to eat and struggling against the often bitter cold, wearing only a shirt and sleeping in a bag that he stole that was used to carry corn. As he does with basically everything, he paints a visceral fucking picture saying, quote, My feet have been so cracked with the frost that the pen with which I am writing might be laid in the gashes. But at the age of around seven or eight, life drastically changed for Douglas. It was determined that he would go to Baltimore to live with Mr. Hugh Ald, the brother of his current enslaver's son-in-law. Because reasons. Either way, as far as Douglas was concerned, anything was better than being on the plantation, and he'd heard people talk about how Baltimore was a great big city that none of the neighboring towns could compare to, and he was anxious to see it for himself, and felt no fear, only hope and desire. Not even knowing what he'd find, just the act of leaving the plantation had awakened a hunger and drive that would stay with him for the rest of his life, and be instrumental in helping him grow into the impassioned, persistent, and, yes, kick-ass adult he'd become. But don't take my word for it! Quote, I look upon my departure from Colonel Lloyd's plantation as one of the most interesting events of my life. It is possible, and even quite probable, that but for the mere circumstance of being removed from that plantation to Baltimore... I should have today, instead of being here seated by my own table in the enjoyment of freedom and the happiness of home, writing this narrative, but confined in the galling chains of slavery. Going to live at Baltimore laid the foundation and opened the gateway to all my subsequent prosperity. Once in Baltimore, Douglas meets his new enslavers, the Alds, and learns he's there to keep the house clean and look after their son. It's awkward, to put it mildly. For one thing, prior to her marriage, Mrs. Ald had grown up poor, worked with her hands and always earned her own way, and thus never interacted with an enslaved person before, so she and Douglas have no idea how to behave towards each other. He's used to what he refers to as, quote, crouching servility for fear of otherwise being seen as impudent or rude and risk getting whipped, and this just makes Mrs. Ald wildly uncomfortable. She sees Douglas as a person, despite, you know, being in the position of enslaving him like a piece of property, but nonetheless insists on treating him kindly. Unfortunately, Douglas foreshadows that it would not be long until the, quote, fatal poison of irresponsible power would begin to change that, and the influence of slavery and being able to hold that kind of power over another human being would eventually do away with the kindness inside her. Which, like, yeah. I know we'd like to have a nice story where there's a good person hiding out among the enslavers being nice to Douglas and stuff, but you can't be a good person and own other people! <laughs> I've seen enough Hollywood movies to know. <laughs> but what about the good white people? Yeah, what about the good ones? These two concepts can't coexist. So, like, maybe, possibly Mrs. Ald really was a nice lady at some point, but, like, 
absolute power corrupts absolutely, and there is no world where you can be a good and kind person while having the literal absolute power over someone with zero consequences for your actions. Not even if you're nice to them sometimes. Not even if you get them a puppy. Not even if you, as Mrs. Ald starts to, teach them to read. You're still a bad person. Uh, she stops when her husband finds out. He tells her that it's unlawful and unsafe to teach an enslaved person to read, that it ruins them and makes them unmanageable, and in fact causes harm to themselves, making them discontented and unhappy. And Douglas is like maybe ten here, but Mr. Ald's words give him a revelation, something that he'd been struggling to understand but now suddenly could. As he put it, quote, the white man's power to enslave the black man. Like, he suddenly understands that this is where the power is, or where it lies. Douglas says that while in the moment he was sad to have lost Mrs. Ald's instruction, he felt that he had gained one just as valuable for Mr. Ald, even if it was unintentional. And he says that more than anything, it was Mr. Ald being like, oh, enslaved people absolutely should never learn to read, that made him like, as of right now, I have never wanted to read more than anything else in the world, and I'm going to learn on my own and be the best at reading, and also, fuck you. And then he read a Thomas Pynchon novel and d wondered, why did I do this? <laughs> this was a mistake, actually. Was it worth it in the end? <laughs> was it, though? But he does. He sneaks books and newspapers when alone in rooms of the house. Even as Mrs. Ald, now having fully shed any form of kindness or sympathy, tries to snatch these away from him. When sent out on errands, he takes books and bread with him and uses the bread to befriend poor white kids out on the street and trade it for reading lessons. By the time he turns 12, he's able to read regular full books on his own, including one called The Columbian Orator, or Orator, whichever, in which an enslaved person is able to argue in defense of their freedom to their enslaver and is then freed. He reads pamphlets on abolitionism over and over and becomes deeply depressed because he feels like Mr. Ald was right, that the more he reads and learns and understands, the more aware he becomes about his situation in life and how little he feels that they, he can do about it and the more miserable he becomes. But then he learns about enslaved people who have successfully won their freedom by escaping to the North and seeking aid from abolitionists. And this kid, this little preteen child is like, Yes, that is what I will do, but I should probably learn to write first. And he does. He starts simple by copying ship carpenters, who would write on a piece of wood that they'd finished working on what part of the ship it was for. S for starboard side, L for larboard side, etc. Yeah, she showed her larboard side. <laughs> Not anymore. Canceled. Show us your larboard side. Canceled. I don't even know what you're talking about. They, it's not on the ride anymore. Oh, Yeah. Yes. Oh. We've been on it since then, even, because it's not PC. Show us your larb. Now she's selling, like, chicken or something. What? Oh, no, they turned her into a pirate. Or whatever it is. She's selling chicken. <laughs> anyway, I was thinking it's a good thing he found white kids who could actually read. You know, like, imagine, like, if you came across, like, Ralph Wiggum or Cletus. <laughs> like, hey, can you help me read? They're like, yeah, it says hamburger, hamburger, hamburger. <laughs> yeah, that would be unfortunate. It's good he found, like, little urchins who actually knew how to read. Yeah. No, he was smart, you know, I'm sure he could have been a bit, would have been able to, like, pick him out. <laughs> so after that, then he moved on to tricking kids into giving him writing lessons. This one, he did specify that he would find kids he knew could write, and he'd be like, hey, I bet I can write letters as good as you can, and they'd be like, prove it, and he'd try, and they'd be like, nah, I could do it better, and he'd get them to write, and then he would just be able to copy what they did. 
because he's fucking smart. And then the rest of it was just taking the old sons, like his old copy books from school, and copying what he'd written, like filling in the rest of it. Until finally, now at 14, Douglas had managed to drag himself up from the crushing existential despair brought on by having been sort of born, you know, into bondage and taught himself to write. Because Frederick Douglas fucking kicks ass. But before he has the chance to try and run away, Mr. Ald and his brother have some kind of fight about something, and as punishment, because that's how shit gets to work in this time and place, Mr. Ald's brother, who is referred to as Captain Ald, takes Douglas away from him and is like, he's mine now. That'll teach you. You're grounded. I'm taking your Frederick away. Yep. And now Douglas has to live out in bumfuck nowhere Maryland once more. Specifically, a town called St. Michael's, which, to give y'all some context, as of 2017, had a population of less than 1,000 people. And this was over 180 years earlier, so it was probably like 15 people and a goat. So, you know, it sucks, obviously. Especially in comparison to Douglas's relatively comfortable life in Baltimore for the past seven years. There's never enough to eat, and Douglas and his fellow enslaved people are frequently whipped, and he describes Captain Ald and his wife as mean and cowardly in all aspects of their life, not just as enslavers, but, you know, just in general, and that they couldn't manage to muster respect from their peers or fear from Douglas. He says at one point Captain Ald attended a Methodist camp, and it gave him the small hope that maybe the shitheel would find religion and emancipate Douglas and the others on the plantation, as sometimes happened, but instead the opposite occurs, and Captain Ald begins using religion to support his cruelty and justify his continued enslaving of African Americans. He prays constantly and becomes a pillar in the community for his piety. Meanwhile, he would quote the scripture as justification when he whipped a woman bloody. I'm sure it's what Jesus would have wanted. Jesus was down for that. Oh yeah. After nine months, Captain Ald says city life has made Douglas too difficult to deal with, and that he's lent him out for a year to a man named Mr. Covey, who has a reputation for breaking young enslaved men. So at about, you know, 15, 16, Douglas goes to work for Mr. Covey, and it's the first time he's ever worked as a field hand. For the first six months, it's an endless nightmare. He's never done this kind of work before, and so he's constantly getting it wrong and getting whipped for it. He and the other men work from first to last light, and are given five minutes for their meals. Amongst themselves, Covey is referred to as the snake because he has this bizarre obsession with crawling around on his hands and knees to sneak up on them when they're working to catch them by surprise. I have a quote. Quote, He was under every tree, behind every stump, in every bush, and at every window on the plantation. He would sometimes mount his horse as if bound to St. Michael's, a distance of seven miles, and in half an hour afterwards you would see him coiled up in the corner of the wood fence watching every motion of the slaves. And, like, I get his idea is to always have them paranoid and feeling like they can never stop working and that he's always watching. But the methodology is what gets me. That he's crawling around on the ground or wedged under a fence or whatever like a little fucking freak. Which, yeah, is probably why they called him the snake. I imagine (laughs) Dale Gribble. (laughs) Just contorted in, like, a weird position, like, I'm here. You can't see me. Fucking weirdo. (laughs) During those six months, Douglas admits that he was as close to broken as he ever got. That he was worked so hard he barely had time to think at all, let alone read, dream, or ponder the idea of escape. But again, at that halfway point after the first six months and before the second, he had another important turning point, and 
Oh, fuck it. It's such a good fucking sentence, what I'm about to say. Like, this this is what I mean when I'm like, yes, this was a real person's life, and it's a piece of history, but it's also a piece of literature and a piece of really good writing. Quote, The circumstances leading to the change in Mr. Covey's course toward me form an epoch in my humble history. You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall now see how a slave was made a man. Douglas writes that it was one of the hottest days in August, and he was carrying wheat when he passes out from the heat. Covey finds him and tells him to get up, and Douglas tries but is unable. And Covey kicks him several times, but Douglas still can't get up until Covey strikes him in the head with a piece of wood, making him bleed all over the fucking place, and then just leaves him there. Fuck me. Finally, he's able to stand up and is like, you know what? Fuck this place and decides to walk the seven miles back to St. Michael's and appeal not to Captain Ald's heart, because clearly the son of a bitch didn't have one, but at least to his wallet, figuring that being covered in blood would make a pretty good case that if he stayed with Covey, he would die and should just come back home. He manages to make it off Covey's property without being caught and returns to Captain Ald's and makes his case, only to receive a resounding meh and told to go back in the morning. He does, and as soon as he crosses the fence, he sees Covey come running out screaming with a whip and is like, nope, fuck that, and runs off into the woods, where he manages to lose Covey, who gives up, figuring Douglas will have to come back eventually or else starve to death in the woods. In the meantime, Douglas finds a fellow enslaved man named Sandy Jenkins, who's received permission to visit his free wife who lives some miles away. Douglas tells him his predicament, and Sandy advises him to go back to Covey, but first dig up a special root and keep it in his right pocket, saying that if he did this, no white man will ever be able to whip him or lay a hand on him ever again, and that it's worked for Sandy for years. And Douglas is like, that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> and Sandy points out that even if it is, it's not like it'll hurt. So Douglas does it. Mostly so that Sandy will stop talking about it because it's weirding him out. <laughs> like he's like, he's like, I did the thing. Mostly just so that he, he would quit it. He waits in the woods all night and finally the next morning returns to Covey's farm. Covey's all smiles when he sees Douglas and asks him to do his tasks like normal, and Douglas isn't sure if this is the power of the root or the fact that it's Sunday and Covey's on his way to church and putting on his good, pious Christian act. He gets his answer the next day, when he's taking care of the horses in the stable, and Covey appears with a length of rope and tries to tie him up. See, God is no longer watching. Yep. <laughs> God's doing other shit now. Douglas says he doesn't know where the spirit came from, but he explodes out of Covey's grasp and grabs him by the neck. Covey's obviously surprised as hell, but he grabs Douglas again and they grapple, and Covey's like, are you gonna keep this up? And Douglas says yes, that he's been used like a brute for six months, and he's had enough, and whatever might happen next, he's determined to fight. So they roll around, and Covey sees a stick lying just outside the stable door, and uh, as an enslaved person named Bill walks by, Covey's like, Bill, Bill, grab him! And Bill just kind of looks in at the situation and is like, I was hired out to you to work in the field. Not to help you whip anyone, so I'm just gonna go. And he just leaves them there to sort it out themselves. <laughs> this is above my pay grade of zero. Exactly. Uh, apparently, it takes two hours. Two hours of a teenager wrestling with a grown man who had to be in at least decent shape because Douglas does say that, that Covey worked out in the fields alongside them, though obviously not for like nearly as long. He was crawling around, <laughs> like planking all day. Yeah. Anyway, Covey eventually gives up and lets him go, wheezing and saying that if Douglas hadn't resisted, he wouldn't have had to whip him half as hard. Except... Except... Except that Covey didn't whip him at all. In fact... 
only one of them is currently bleeding, and it's Covey. Douglas never receives punishment for raising his hand against a white man, and as best as he can guess, he assumes it's because if Covey had had to send a 16-year-old boy to the public whipping post for such a crime, it would ruin his otherwise untarnished reputation as a breaker of enslaved young men. For the rest of the year Douglas spends on Covey's farm, the man never lays a finger on him again. And in fact, Douglas tells us that although he would remain enslaved for another four years and would get into a few fights, he would never be whipped again, period. He gets his self-confidence back, his resolve, his spirit, and his determination to be free. It was all probably that root the weird dude he met in the woods gave him. Ginger. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the power of ginger. You blend that shit up, you take it with some wheatgrass, they'll do you good. His time in the service of Mr. Covey ends on Christmas Day, and Douglas devotes some time talking about how enslavers make a point of granting the days between Christmas and New Year's as holidays, but that they're not a form of grace or goodwill, but just another tool of subjugation. He writes, quote, The holidays are part and parcel of the gross fraud, wrong, and inhumanity of slavery. They are professedly a custom established by the benevolence of the slaveholders. But I undertake to say it is the result of selfishness, and one of the grossest frauds committed upon the downtrodden slave. They do not give the slave this time because they would not like to have their work during its continuance, but because they know it would be unsafe to deprive them of it. This would be seen by the fact that the slaveholders like to have their slaves spend those days just in such a manner as to make them as glad of their ending as of their beginning. Their object seems to be to disgust their slaves with their freedom by plunging them into the lowest depths of dissipation. For instance, the slaveholders not only like to see the slave drink of his own accord, but will adopt various plans to make him drunk. One plan is to make bets on their slaves as to who can drink the most whiskey without getting drunk. And in this way, they succeed in getting whole multitudes to drink to excess. Thus, when the slave asks for virtuous freedom, the cunning slaveholder, knowing his ignorance, cheats him with a dose of vicious dissipation, artfully labeled with the name of liberty. The most of us used to drink it down, and the result was just what might be supposed. Many of us were led to think that there was little to choose between liberty and slavery. We felt, and very properly too, that we had almost as well be slaves to man as to rum. So when the holidays ended, we staggered up from the filth of our wallowing, took a long breath, and marched to the field, feeling upon the whole rather glad to go from what our master had deceived us into a belief was freedom back into the arms of slavery. After the holidays, Douglas is sent to work for Mr. Freeland, who is, in comparison to Mr. Covey, much easier to live with. At the very least, he's not abusive, he's open and straightforward instead of sneaky and weird, and what Douglas seems to appreciate the most at the time, he's not religious. Here he goes off on a major tear on what he refers to as, quote, the religion of the South, and that its only use is to cover up the most horrid crimes, quote, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders find the strongest protection. Were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery, next to that enslavement I should regard being the slave of a religious master the greatest calamity that could befall me. For of all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. I have ever found them the meanest and basest, the most cruel and cowardly of all others. My God is an awesome God. <laughs> Douglas's time working on Mr. Freeland's farm is significantly more chill than his horrible year with Covey, and he even has the free time to set up a Sabbath school where he secretly teaches his fellow enslaved people how to read. 
recalling that at one time he had as many as 40 men and women coming to him at the house of a free man who was sympathetic to their cause. He spends a little over a year doing this before he starts getting anxious about the fact that he's approaching adulthood and still stuck in the bonds of slavery. So he begins his plan to escape in earnest with four others, eventually planning to steal a large canoe and paddle up Chesapeake Bay with permissions forged by Douglas saying that they're on their way to Baltimore. Douglas says that, quote, in coming to a fixed determination to run away, we did more than Patrick Henry when he resolved upon liberty or death. With us, it was a doubtful liberty at most and almost certain death if we failed. See, there's that good dramatic callback his buddy William Lloyd Garrison set him up for. <laughs> So the night before they plan to escape, Douglas can't even sleep, he's so amped. This is it. It's finally time. The culmination of all his planning and waiting, he just has to get through the next day. But then the morning comes, and just like in the movies, when he walks out to start work, he has a feeling inside him that he can't account for. Just something in his gut. I've got a feeling. <laughs> that I think I've been betrayed. <laughs> and he has. By breakfast time, the constable arrives and grabs Douglas and the other young men that he'd planned on escaping with. They're taken off to Easton Jail, where they're kept for several days, the evidence against them being an informant who had apparently told all to Mr. Freeland. The others are eventually allowed to return home, but Douglas, outed as the ringleader, is kept in jail, uncertain what will happen to him. Surprisingly, he goes back to Baltimore. Captain Dawn still doesn't want to deal with him, and there's no one he can hire him out to in hick-ass Maryland anymore because... Now he's got something of a reputation, so he gives him back to his brother like, he's not worth the trouble. So after three years of absence, Frederick Douglass is back, baby, and he's gonna learn to cock. As any good young man does. Yes. Or at least he was supposed to. Mr. Ald sends him to a shipbuilder named William Gardner, but that doesn't work out so good because there's no time to teach him anything, because everyone in that shipyard is super focused on this contract building huge man-of-war brigs, uh, or man-of-brigs, man big, big ships. And they mostly just all scream at him to run 20 different errands all at once. It also doesn't help that they recently outlawed uh, freed black carpenters from the shipyard after the white carpenters accused them of taking white carpenter jobs, and refused to work until they were removed. <laughs> so glad that's not a thing people say anymore. Yeah. So even though that doesn't apply to Douglas, since he's enslaved, they still don't like having him there. And the apprentices start to beat up on him. And he's not going to take that shit sitting down, so he fights back. But it's one against probably a dozen, and so they beat him to a pulp while everyone else just stands around and watches, because, yep, that's how they do. And Douglas barely manages to flee with his life, running home to find unexpected sympathy from Mr. and Mrs. Ald, who are shocked and appalled at his condition, and that out of the 50 or so men at the shipyard who watched the beating happen, no one is willing to testify on Douglas's behalf. Really? That surprises you? You didn't want to teach him to read because it would make him too much like a person? And now you're upset that no one's going to come to his defense as if he were, you know, a person? Logic. Mm. Can't teach it. Either way, Mr. All takes him to another shipyard where he learns proper cocking. And in a year, he's able to, quote, command the highest wages given to the most experienced cockers. Nice. Douglas says that now his condition in life had become wildly more comfortable. He's bringing in a significant chunk of change to Mr. Ald, and when he's not cocking it up, he basically just chills. But that also means that he has plenty of time to think about what he doesn't have. Namely, his freedom. Spurred on by the pain of every Saturday having to turn over his weekly earnings to Mr. Ald, quote, not because he earned it, 
Not because he had any hand in earning it, not because I owed it to him, nor because he possessed the slightest shadow of a right to it, but solely because he had the power to compel me to give it up, he starts back at square one and begins planning a means of escape once more. At this point, Douglas stops to say, yes, this is the juicy part of the story where he escapes from his enslavement and becomes a free man, but not to expect much in the way of details. And that while he understands this may be narratively disappointing, because it sure was satisfying to read about him choking out Mr. Covey, and shocking when his first escape plan was somehow discovered, pragmatism has to win out here, for a few reasons. Number one, he doesn't want to out the people who helped him and either put them in danger or involve them in, quote, embarrassing difficulties. Two, if he explained how he managed to escape, there's a high likelihood it would make it more difficult for another enslaved person to escape using the same method. In fact, he thinks this is already a pretty serious issue, and he says it like everything else so well. Quote, I have never approved of the very public manner in which some of our Western friends have conducted what they call the Underground Railroad, but which I think, by their open declarations, has been made most emphatically the Upper Ground Railroad. I honor those good men and women for their noble daring and applaud them for willingly subjecting themselves to bloody persecution by openly avowing their participation in the escaping of slaves. I, however, can see very little good resulting from such a course, either to themselves or the slaves escaping, while upon the other hand, I see and feel assured that those open declarations are a positive evil to the slaves remaining, who are seeking to escape. They do nothing towards enlightening the slave, whilst they do much towards enlightening the master. They stimulate him to greater watchfulness and enhance his power to capture his slave. We owe something to the slaves south of the line as well as to the north of it, and in aiding the latter on their way to freedom, we should be careful to do nothing which would be likely to hinder the former from escaping slavery. I would keep the merciless slaveholder profoundly ignorant of the means of flight adopted by the slave. So Douglas starts to get extremely restless and making plans for escape in earnest, all the while making as much money from Mr. Ald as he can so that the man suspects that Douglas is nothing but perfectly happy in his situation. The only thing that gives him pause is that he actually has a lot of friends in Baltimore that he's truly going to miss, and he's leaving them for somewhere he's unsure of, where he knows absolutely no one. He's also pretty scared after what happened with attempt number one, and feels like if this one fails he'll either die or be doomed to be a slave forever, which to him is essentially the same thing. But he musters up that Frederick Douglass spirit and goes for it, and on September 3rd, 1838, at the age of around 20, he successfully escapes enslavement through mysterious means that we don't get to know about, and ends up in New York, as most Ono Liklas alums are wont to do. He used the root. Yes, through the power of the root. <laughs> Things move pretty quickly from there. He's freaked out and feels like he can't trust anyone, but then he meets a man named David Ruggles, who helps fugitive slaves, and who gets Douglas word to Anna, a free woman who is apparently his intended wife that we are only hearing about for the first time, that he's in New York, he helps them get married when she gets there, and then sends them off to friends of his in New Bedford. Once in New Bedford, Douglas officially changes his name, like we talked about, from Frederick Bailey to Frederick Douglas, that he'd been Frederick Johnson, you know, we just did all that. Um, anyway, he says that he'd assumed that a town with no slaves would mean that everyone would be super dirt poor, and that would just be the way of it, but instead he was shocked to see that even the poorest people in New Bedford seemed to live better than the richest enslavers in the South. Uh, as for escaped former enslaved people, he says, quote, I found many who had not been seven years out of their chains living in finer houses and evidently enjoying more of the comforts of life than the average slaveholders in Maryland. I mean, it's not like New Bedford is like a magical, non-racist utopia. 
Douglas tries to get a job as a cocker, but can't find any white cockers willing to work with him, and instead must take up woodworking. Still, he finds work, earns wages, and lives happily with his wife for three years before he begins attending anti-slavery meetings, and then one fateful day is urged to speak, and the rest, as they say, is history. Which you'll tell more of. Finally, after the last chapter, Douglas includes a brief appendix saying that he doesn't want anyone to get the wrong idea of after reading this and come away from it thinking that he hates religion. Because he doesn't. He loves religion. Big fan of that Jesus fella. Quote, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial hypocritical Christianity of this land. It goes on, but that's pretty much the gist of it. And that's his life to 27. It's a lot of it. It's a lot of life. But he's still got a lot more fucking living to do. But that's, that is the end of the narrative life of Frederick Douglass. <laughs> the book. So the after credit scene was, Jesus is cool. People do with the word of Jesus not cool. Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's, hey guys, just so you know, I'm down with the Lord, but people be using it to do... All kinds of fucking atrocities and shit. <laughs> and Frederick will return in his next book. Yes, Frederick will return in his next book. Get get yourself right with God and and stop doing slavery. Hey everybody, it's Megan. Sorry if this uh, break is in an awkward spot. Obviously, this episode is structured a little differently than normal, so wasn't super sure where to put it. But anyway, uh, I'm just popping in like usual to let you know that this episode, as always, is brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing, magical, potentially, I don't know, you don't know, we have no way of proving it one way or the other, so let's just say magical patrons, including our newest one, Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. If you would like to join their ranks and potentially gain magic powers, again, I don't know, you don't know, maybe, could happen, then you could head to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass and definitely, can be proven, get stickers, bookmarks, posters, t-shirts, access to bonus content, bonus episodes, videos, live streams, let's plays, all kinds of fun stuff. We really appreciate it. It helps pay for all the fees and things associated with keeping the podcast going and also the fact that I am still languishing in the hell of unemployment. Yay! (laughs) This week's Pod Pals is the Before Words Podcast. It is an almost brand spanking new show where each... Uh, episode is a brief little brain nugget on the history and definitional knowledge surrounding a word. Everything from mortgage to robot to, yes, quarantine. It's a really cool show. It's super informative. The production value is through the roof. Like, it sound amazing. And it's just, like, really funny and charming and they're like six minutes long so you just like tear ass through it and then you become full of word knowledge and you will have fun doing it so definitely check them out when you called your friend a geek were you accusing them of biting the heads off of animals the next time you chomp into an avocado 
Will you actually be sinking your teeth into male genitalia? When you say you're going out for a jog, are you headed out for a sweaty time in the streets of Manhattan? Or are you teasing someone relentlessly at a dinner party? Get ready to learn all about these zany, funny, and downright crude etymologies here on Before Words. In each six-minute episode, we'll dive into the world of a word and explore its unusual origins. Pop it on in the train. Tune in on the bus. Listen quietly in the bathroom. Armed with all this snazzy, state-of-the-art Before Words content, you'll have plenty of new, bizarre, fun facts about the English language to impress your friends and family. Before Words, wherever podcasts are found. So as for the text itself, within four months of it first being published, it sold 5,000 copies. To put this in context, that is double the amount of copies Little Women sold when it was initially released. Frederick's works were lauded by most during his lifetime. Of course, there were detractors, especially enslavers, who wrote retorts to Douglas's work. One negative review was titled, A Letter from a Slaveholder. Because, you know, that's setting a good tone. Oh, yeah. Margaret Fuller, a prominent book critic, on the other hand, said of Douglas's work, quote, We have never read a narrative more simple, true, coherent, and warm with genuine feeling. Everyone may read his book and see what a mind might have been stifled in bondage, and what a man may be subjected to the insults of spendthrift dandies or the blows of mercenary brutes, in whom there is no whiteness except of the skin, no humanity in the outward form. After publication, Frederick left the U.S. for England and Ireland. He was afraid that his former enslaver would attempt to capture him again. While overseas, his supporters helped him raise $710.96 he needed to purchase his legal freedom. Before publication, when Douglas would give speeches, he was limited on the topics he was allowed to cover and limited as to the hot takes he was allowed to dispense onto crowds. Once he was published, he was given free reign over his own speeches and was no longer limited by white abolitionists. His newfound platform allowed him to start a black newspaper when he returned to the U.S. in 1847 at the age of 29. He named the paper the North Star. He raised $500 to start the paper, which in today's dollars is the equivalent of nearly $50,000. Hell yeah. Not a bad fundraiser if I don't say so myself. The motto of the paper was... Right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of all of us, and we are all brethren. Go off, Frederick. In September 1848, Frederick published an open letter to his former enslaver, Thomas Ald, which reads in part, Sir, the long and intimate, though by no means friendly relation which unhappily subsisted between you and myself, leads me to hope that you will easily account for the great liberty which I now take in addressing you in this open and public manner. So that would be, also, that would be Captain Ald. So not the Baltimore one, the bumfuck nowhere one. Your wickedness and cruelty committed in this respect on your fellow creatures are greater than all the stripes you have laid upon my back or theirs. It is an outrage upon the soul, a war upon the immortal spirit, and one for which you must give account at the bar of our common father and creator. How, let me ask, would you look upon me, were I some dark in night company with a band of hardened villains to enter 
the precincts of your elegant dwelling and seize the person of your own lovely daughter Amanda and carry her off from your family, friends, and all the loved ones of her youth. Make her my slave, compel her to work, and I take her wages. Place her name on my ledgerous property. Disregard her personal rights. Fetter the powers of her immortal soul by denying her the right and privilege of learning to read and write. Feed her coarsely. Clothe her scantily, and whip her on the naked back occasionally. More and still horrible, leave her unprotected, a degraded victim to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers who would pollute, blight, and blast her fair soul. Rob her of all dignity, destroy her virtue, and annihilate all in her person the graces that adorn the character of virtuous womanhood. I ask how would you regard me if such were my conduct? Oh, the vocabulary of the damned would not afford a word sufficiently infernal to express your idea of my God-provoking wickedness. Yet, sir, your treatment of my beloved sisters is in all essential points precisely like the case I have now supposed. Damning, as would be such a deed on my part, it would be no more so than which you have committed against me and my sisters. I am your fellow man, but not your slave. Frederick Douglass. P.S. I sent a copy of the paper containing this letter to save postage. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. Among other causes Frederick championed during his life, women's suffrage was among them. In 1848, Douglas was the only African-American to attend the Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights convention. At the convention, he argued in favor of women's suffrage, in part because he could not accept the right to vote as a black man if women cannot also claim that right. He believed that the world would be a better place if women were involved in the political sphere. He said at the convention, quote, In this denial of the right to participate in government, not merely the degradation of woman and the perpetuation of great injustice happens, but the maiming and repudiation of one half of the moral and intellectual power of the government of the world. After the Civil War, when the 15th Amendment was debated, which is what gave men of color the right to vote, Many suffragettes argued that the amendment should encompass women's suffrage as well. Douglas split with them on this point, afraid the amendment would fail if it also included women's suffrage at this point in time. After the Civil War, Frederick became a prominent figure in national politics. He was appointed to a number of positions and committees. He was actually named as Victoria Woodhull's running mate as vice president on the Equal Rights Party ticket in the 1872 election. The thing is, though, no one ever asked him if he wanted to run as someone's vice president. They just took it upon themselves to nominate him. He never campaigned or otherwise acknowledged that he was put on the ticket. In 1888, at the Republican National Convention, he received a vote for president on the National Party's roll call vote. This made him the first African American to receive such a vote in one of the major parties' conventions. Later in life, he continued to travel domestically and abroad to give speeches and lectures, eventually settling down in Washington, D.C., on February 20th, 1895, at the age of 77, Frederick suffered a heart attack and passed away. Just so you all know, after his death, Frederick achieved RJ's test of fame. He had a stamp made in his likeness. There you go. He got the stamp. Hell, the District of Columbia made one of those quarters to honor him. But I have to be real here. The image on the quarter looks more like Bob Ross than Frederick Douglass. Sorry, but I gotta call him like I see him. The stamp thing... Is all he needed, though, to go on my list of really famous writer people. The end. I gotta say, having seen the quarter, it, it is really bad. It's not a good likeness. They did do him dirty on the quarter. Which is weird, since we know what he looked like. Yeah, since we, we had a lot of pictures of him to go on. And they made him into Bob Ross. It's, yeah. 
Although that just makes me go back to our... Um, Continuing review the, the, of, of Finger of, Puppets. Yeah, finger, finger Puppets, which I think we've only... That only made it onto our, our Kurt Vonnegut, our, our Slaughterhouse-Five episode, but... Yeah, those that that one company on Amazon. What makes the the finger puppet? What, what massacres famous people in the form of finger puppets? So so badly. They made him look like Karl Marx. Yeah, he does look like Karl Marx. It's real bad. <laughs> this finger puppet company just needs to be tried for their crime. Whoa, whoa! What did they do to Malcolm X? Why is he a ginger? Why's he got red hair? They do terrible, terrible things to these these finger puppets. Maybe they're finger puppets they found, and they just try to figure out who does this most look like. <laughs> who do we think this is? Just crimes. So that just leaves us with where we usually kind of bring in adaptations. So while there is yet to have been a direct adaptation of Douglas's narrative, various interpretations of Douglas himself have appeared in all kinds of forms of media in popular culture. Douglas appears as a character in, like, four different alternate history novels, going in either directions at least, not just the usual creepy and sad, what if the Confederacy won? Uh, there's one called Fire on the Mountain that explores a world in which John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry succeeded, and instead of the Civil War, there's like a massive slave revolt. Uh, it says, quote, In this history, Frederick Douglass, along with Harriet Tubman, is the revered founder of a black state created in the Deep South. So, that's the thing. In 2018, historian David W. Blight published a biography of Douglass titled Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, which won the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for History, it was rumored back in 2019 to be getting a feature film adaptation produced by the Obamas in partnership with Netflix, but there hasn't been anything substantial since then. Probably because COVID. In 2013, author James McBride wrote the comedic historical fiction novel The Good Lord Bird, which won the National Book Award and has been compared to like a kind of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn sort of plot. People have mixed feelings about it because it's like a weird comedy thing, but in it, the main character encounters historical figures John Brown, Harriet Tubman, and Frederick Douglass, among others. It's been adapted into a miniseries that's set to air in October on Showtime, where Douglass will be played by actor, rapper, writer, and absurdly handsome man David Diggs. So, you know, good get. <laughs> uh, speaking of TV and movies, in the 1989 film Glory, about the Union Army's 2nd African-American Regiment in the American Civil War, Douglas pops up being played by actor Raymond St. Chuck, who, as an unrelated but still interesting aside, was the first black actor to appear in a regular role on a Western series. In the 2015 documentary The Gettysburg Address, Douglas is voiced by Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, he's played by J.B. Smoove in an epic rap battles of history video on YouTube against Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> and yeah, it's pretty much exactly what you would imagine. It's like Hamilton, but not catchy. It's epic rap battles of history. But, but you know what? I'm sitting here calling a famed orator, or, orator, orator, I'm never going to get that word, and abolitionist Frederick Douglass a badass. So maybe I don't have room to throw stones. Maybe I live in a glass house. Maybe I am the Hamilton. <laughs> you might be. I might be. Finally, uh, just this past 4th of July, NPR released a video of some of Frederick Douglass' descendants reading one of his most famous speeches, What to the Slave is the 4th of July? It's easy to find on YouTube, and it's pretty fucking powerful and still viciously relevant, especially coming out of the mouths of his descendants. It's 
very much worth checking out. And that's that's about it for that. Which brings us to the part of the show that we always get to, which is... Hey, RJ! Sup, Megan? The narrative life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. Yeah. Good? Or bad? Really? I know. I feel weird just asking it. Oh, <laughs> Frederick, great protagonist. <laughs> great story. Great ending. But you have these antagonists, not very believable. Just a little over the top. Over huh? the top evil. <laughs> Where's my good white character? Where's my sympathetic white character? Exactly. I'm trying to think of 12 Years a Slave. Is it Fastbender? It was, it, was, it, was, no, it was Brad Pitt. Fastbender oh. was the bad one. Brad Pitt oh. was the good, the good Canadian. Ah. He was just there as a hired worker hand. Where is Brad Pitt? Where, where is my Canadian Brad Pitt? Actually, I guess I'm waiting for, at this point, I think it would be on brand, um, a Clint Eastwood directed film where he's oh, the good white guy. Oh, no. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's very well written. It's probably the most famous of slave narratives. It set the groundwork for many others. And it, he created a career out of it. So, good. <laughs> hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? Frederick Douglass. His narrative. Good or bad. It's, it's everything you just said. It's incredibly significant. in like you said, paving the way for slave narratives. Helping the abolitionist movements. Um, but if, if even if you just wanted to completely divorce it from its context, which I am not advocating for because that would be kind of deranged. But if you did, if you put it in a vacuum... It's just straight up good fucking writing. Like, it's not even like, this is a very important account, and it doesn't matter whether it's well-written or not. Like, it is a very important autobiographical account, and it is just objectively good goddamn writing. So yes, obviously, good. There you go. Yeah. And that will about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Class. If you enjoy the show... Then spread the word, write a review, tell your friends, tell your family, tell it in the streets with a mask on. Do it, do it responsibly. Be safe. Yes. Or, you know, do it on the internet. That way you don't have to wear a mask. Unless you're into that. I don't know your life. You can follow us on Twitter at OnoLickClassPod. You can join the Facebook group. You can pledge to us on Patreon for bonus content and all kinds of other goodies at patreon.com slash onolickclass. You can find the links to all those things and more at onolickclass.com. Our next episode will be out on August 6th. And until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Bye. During my research, why there are... I'll put him in the bedroom. Do you want in or out, fuckface? <laughs>